Morning. The Lord be with you. So good to see you. You can take your seats this morning. If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. New Life East is one of eight congregations of New Life Church located all around the Colorado Springs area. We're delighted that you'd worship with us this morning. Uh, you asked the question who we are and what are we about. We believe that God in Christ has reconciled us to himself. He's made us his friends. And he's done more than that. He's reconciled us to one another, which means that the church is a community of friendship. We're friends with one another and we're friends with the living God. We believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. And that means that new creation is at work in the world. And so if you're looking for a home church, uh, we'd love the opportunity to meet you. You can come and see us after the service in Connect Central. A couple of our pastors and leaders will be out there. We can answer any questions that you might have about us. And uh, just help you get oriented in our little universe here. Uh, Two things I need to say to you before we open the scriptures this morning. First of all, uh, I think about you a lot, New Life East. Always on my heart, always on my mind. I pray for you all the time. And I was meditating just recently on the year that we've had together. And uh, we are, believe it or not, closing in on three years together as a congregation. And it's been amazing. You can give God praise for that for sure. It's been amazing. It's like your kids, actually, as they get older, you see an identity emerging in them. And I see an identity emerging in you that is so inspiring to me. It's moving to me. And so I just put pen to paper and started kind of saying what I see in you. And uh, so I'm saying that as a way of saying that tomorrow, if you're on the New Life East weekly email list, tomorrow in your inbox, you'll have a little end of the year pastoral Christmas encouragement from me. If you're not on the New Life East Weekly email list and you'd like to be, please see us after the service. We'll get you all connected with that. And so but be looking for that tomorrow. The other thing I need to say to you is uh, our services coming up the next couple weeks, just to give you a heads up. We'll be in here on Saturday for Christmas Eve, 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock. Children's ministry will be 0 to 5 years old. So by and large, it'll be a family service. Uh, We expect the services to be pretty full. And uh, so I just encourage you, both of them I think are going to be pretty full, but I encourage you, if you have friends, family members, people that are kind of on the fringe of church, this is when people come and worship. So invite them into the house of God with us. The message that I'm giving is going to be really simple and straightforward. I'm giving a message out of Luke chapter 2, talking about what it means to call Jesus the Savior of the world. What do we mean when we call him Savior? So if you've got people that you've been trying to win over to Jesus, bring them in. They'll have a chance to hear about Jesus, come to the table together. We'll sing traditional Christmas songs, light candles. It's going to be great. Uh, The next Sunday, so Sunday, Christmas Day, December 25th, even though that in spirit the doors of the church are always open, the physical doors will be very closed on that day. And so you can sing songs by yourself or with your family together, but you, you won't do it here. Or maybe there will be a little remnant here outside in the parking lot. I don't know, but we're not going to be here on Christmas Day. I'm going to be opening presents and watching football all day is what I'm going to do. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Okay. And then on New Year's Day, we know that New Year's Eve, you know, you all be out like doing stuff and having fun. And so rather than having a bunch of stragglers come in for the 9 a.m. service, like 15 people and all that, we just decided, how about we eat breakfast together? So on New Year's, uh, New Year's Day, 9.30 a.m., come on in here. We're going to have breakfast burritos for you and all kinds of other fun breakfast things and juice and coffee and all that. We'll eat together. And then it'll be one service. How many services? 
11 a.m. on New Year's Day. Again, zero to five years old. Going to be a really great time. That's all of the public service announcements I have for you. How about we read the Bible together? Yes. Okay. I'm going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Uh, Advent, as we have talked about over the last few uh, weeks, is a word that means you ought to know it by now. <laughs> yes, well, it means coming. Advent means coming. So in the season of Advent, what we're looking for is the coming of God, the appearance of God, the manifestation of God. And I've talked about a few different times here that the church actually believes that there are three different comings of the Lord. So we look ahead to the end of history when he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We look to the first century when he came among us in flesh and blood, coming number two. But then, of course, he comes to us in our experience. God has this way of sort of tearing back the veil of reality, and he kind of pops in to our world in a way that's visible, in a way that we can see. So usually during the first part of Advent, what you do is you look ahead to the second coming when he will return again in glory. But as you get closer and closer to Christmas, you turn your attention to that first coming, at Bethlehem in the first century. And so this morning, we begin to turn our thoughts towards what it means to call Jesus Christ our Emmanuel, that miraculous event that we know as the incarnation. I'm in the book of Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The scripture says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her, it's actually from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here's the verse. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means say aloud church. And so Lord, here we are. God with us, mighty to save. We look to you. We, well, I love the song that we sang earlier, let every heart prepare him room. And you, uh, you don't come to places that are already occupied with something, but you come to the empty hearts. Like you come to this building, an empty building every Sunday, and somehow you fill it up with the miracle of your presence. Mary's womb was an empty womb, and you filled it up with the miracle of your presence. So our lives in large part, are empty lives. And we're looking for the miracle of your presence to dawn upon us. We pray that as we meditate on these things this morning, this word, Emmanuel, we pray that we would be startled into salvation again. Oh God, would you come? Some of us have been in this a long time. This is our 50th Advent, our 60th Advent, and we know the texts, and we've heard the sermons, and yet our God is a God of surprise, and I pray that you would surprise us again, and yeah, 
Yeah. If anybody is in Christ, it's all new creation. We pray that something of your newness would come to us this morning. Do that, we're asking. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I think that what I love the most about God, I've been a Christian all my life, been reading the scriptures all of my life. And I think that what I love the most about God is that when you search the scriptures and you get to know this God, one of the things that you'll realize is that this God has this kind of studied determination not to be God without us. And he could have been. He didn't need to make us, didn't need to create all of this, didn't need to endure all that he's had to endure with us. And he would have been fine, complete as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But instead, out of love, he made us. And when he makes us, uh, he shows that he's the kind of God that refuses to be God without us. When you start reading, for instance, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, you see God creating the heavens and the earth and setting the heavens and the earth in place and filling the land with animals and plants and fruits and vegetables and fish in the sea, birds in the sky, all of that stuff. And as you're reading it, if you were reading the text of Scripture for the first time, and you didn't know more about it, you'd probably be wondering, why is this God making all of this stuff? Like, what's the point of the creative effort? Why would God go through all of the effort it takes to make this whole thing? And we come to this verse in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, where we start to see something of the purpose of God. Then the man and his wife, the scripture says, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was what? As he was walking in the garden in the cool of So here is everlasting, eternal, infinite, unbounded God creates the heavens and the earth, sets this little garden in place, puts the man and the woman in it, and he could be anywhere doing anything. And yet what is he doing? He's in the garden. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You get the impression that God made all of this because he wants to be with us. It might actually be the case that God likes us. (laughs) And as if that weren't enough in Genesis, as the story of Scripture unfolds, you actually see God reiterate this theme. When he delivers his people up out of Egypt, here in Leviticus chapter 26, he's articulating his manner of being among the people. And he says to them that I will what? Not rhetorical, I will. What was he doing in Genesis? He was walking. What's he doing here in Leviticus? I'm going to walk among you. And I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I like you. I want to be with you. I love that about God. God is always moving towards his people, always trying to create space among us for his own presence to dwell because he wants to be with us forever. And the very beautiful thing about God, you see this in the scriptures, and you'll get to know this in your experience if you walk with him for any length of time, is that this determination of God's to be God with us is so even in spite of and through our failure. And so even when we do everything that we can possibly do to give God the stiff arm and go, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get away from me, God. God goes, you're not getting rid of me that easily. If you think about the book of Ezekiel, people of God have been in hundreds of years of rebellion and defiance against God. And so they finally get ripped out of their homeland and taken eastward to Babylon, strangers in a strange land. And Ezekiel, who's a priest of God, he has one night, he has this vision of the temple of God And in his vision, a very curious thing happens. The temple, of course, is the place among the people of God where God promises to dwell forever. And so he looks 
at the temple and he sees that cloud of glory, which is a symbol of God's abiding presence. And the glory comes from the very innermost chamber of the temple and it makes its way to the threshold. And he goes, huh, what's that about? And then as he continues to look at the cloud of glory that's gone to the threshold of the temple, all of a sudden he sees that it's now moved to the east gates of the temple. Then he continues to watch that glory further and the glory all of a sudden then moves from the east gate to the mountains eastward of the city. Where is Babylon? It's east. Where is God going? East. And so even if this moment is a moment of judgment on the temple, it's also, and just to the same extent, it's a moment of salvation. God goes, if you guys aren't going to be here, I ain't going to be here. You guys going to go to Babylon? I'm going to Babylon. If you guys... If you guys, through your rebellion, are going to cast yourselves into the belly of the beast, that's where I'm going. Because I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. In fact, God to his people in in Babylon reiterates the promise of Leviticus 26, Ezekiel chapter 27 or 37 here. The scripture says, oh, I know it's coming. My dwelling place will be what? With them and I will be their God and they will be my people Where? In Babylon. And so if I have you in the garden, it's all good. And if I have you in Jerusalem, it's all good. And if that's not, if either of those places are not places that you want to be, if you want to take up residence in Babylon, it's all good. I'm going there with you. And when we come then to this moment in Matthew chapter 1, where we learn that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call this person who actually happens to be God in flesh, what do they call him? He is the fulfillment of that trajectory. He's the fulfillment of that promise. And it's not just that God in Christ has become one body among many bodies, where it's like, oh yeah, the rest of us are kind of far away from God, but Jesus happened to have a special close proximity to God. No, 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 it's not like that at all. Because what the incarnation means is that God has not just taken a person into himself, but God has taken our whole humanity into himself, which means that you and I can no more escape the Emmanuel reality than we can escape our very skin. Because God has made this skin part of the infinite life of God. Thanks be to God. So what does it mean to call God? What does it mean to call Jesus our Emmanuel? Let me give you three things this morning. Number one, it means that we have a companion. We are never alone. It doesn't matter what you walk through. It doesn't matter how you're feeling about things. It doesn't matter how bad your life has gotten. You cannot get away from Emmanuel, God. You are never alone. And the feeling of being alone is a terrible feeling, isn't it? You ever had a moment in your life where you felt like really, really alone? I had one when I was about eight or nine years old, maybe. My parents, uh, who were otherwise very godly people, sometimes had um, bouts of cruelty. I'm saying it was very tongue-in-cheek. My parents are probably listening. One of their cruel things that they did to me was they sent me to summer school every year. It's a very mean thing to do to a child. And I'm sorry if you send your kids there. I'm sorry that I undercut your parenting here. But it's very mean. I hated summer school. All my, no, none of my friends went there. It's awful. So I am like banished, you know, to this building where I have to learn typing skills and French. Why? 
just couldn't figure it out. And I hated going there. I hated going there. And one day my mom told me it was like this cold, wet, rainy summer day in Wisconsin. And my mom dropped me off and she was like, hey, just so you know, you know, your dad's going to be picking you up at the end of summer school today. So be looking for your dad. Now, my dad at the time worked for a car dealership and he would drive like demo vehicles, you know, it was just kind of to sort of advertise like the kinds of vehicles that the dealership had. And he would, they would do that on like a rotating basis. So he'd have one for a couple weeks and another for a couple weeks and so on and so forth. So my dad had been driving around this one vehicle and that was the vehicle I thought he was going to be picking me up in. And so after four very long and excruciating hours at summer school, I walk out into the cold and the rain and I look around and I don't see that vehicle anywhere. And I went, well, he just must be a little bit late. So I go inside and I kind of bide my time there. And then I go back out and I look around and I don't see the car anywhere. And I go, huh, I wonder where dad is, you know. I go back inside, wait a couple more minutes. I go back outside. Now there's alarm in my heart, you know. Have I been forgotten? Oh, no, you know. And so I go back inside and now I'm just a tender eight or nine-year-old and the tears are starting to well up with me. And I go outside and I just don't see my dad at all. And now they're just flowing down my cheeks, you know. Why? Because it's a horrible feeling to be alone. And I'm standing out there in the cold and the wet and the rain. I'm doing this so that you'll have a lot of sympathy for me. And this is actually going to help me with the preaching, actually, is what it's going to do. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice call to me from a car I didn't recognize. And it was my daddy. He just switched into a new car. Andrew, you know. And the feeling of, like, somebody <laughs> recognize me. My dad has come, you know. Such a good feeling. What's the feeling? The feeling is... I'm not actually alone. Somebody bigger and stronger, more powerful than me is looking out for me. And that's God. And the life of salvation is a life of waking up to the reality that there's never been a moment of your life that you've been apart from God. You've always been close to him. You just didn't know it. And faith is like learning to trust it. I came to know God in a very personal way when I was in 11th grade, born and raised in a church, always knew Jesus and loved Jesus. But you have those moments, you know, in your life where God becomes so much more real to you, like it comes home to you in a really special way. And I remember 11th grade, one morning, God revealed himself to me, Jesus, kindness of Jesus. And I, I remember, probably you can remember when Jesus first became real to you, how everywhere you went and everything you did, you just saw Jesus in everything. It's that sense of like, what a friend we have in Jesus. You just, you live that. And there have been times in my life since then, 11th grade, I was 16, so 25 years ago. There have been times in my sense of God's presence, it's ebbed and it's flowed. But that basic conviction that God is with me, it's never wavered. And I'm telling you, it has carried me through many dark seasons. That it doesn't matter how dark things get around me and how hard things get around me, that there, God, God is with me. Karl Barth, the great theologian of the church, once said that the corollary of God with us means us with God. <laughs> you know, like it's not just that God has determined to be with us, but now we're stuck to God. So that wherever we go, we're going with God and God is going with us. You can't get away from him. That's what I'm trying to say. And the more you lean into God, the more you'll begin to learn to trust us. I love how the psalmist said it. Psalm 139, maybe my favorite psalm. The psalmist says, where can I go? from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, what? But if I make my bed, you're there. You know, the depths is in Hebrew, Sheol, the grave. 
You can even translate it hell. <laughs> like Babylon. Like if I make my bed even there, I can't get away from you. You just keep running after me. You keep chasing me. It's objective. You know what John Calvin, the great reformer, do you know what he said about this whole thing? He said that in the person of Jesus, that moment when this person, Jesus Christ the Lord, our Emmanuel God, is pinned up on the hard wood of the cross and he begins to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what Calvin says? That was the moment when Jesus was in hell. No greater hell could ever be thought of than the hell of being separated from the presence of God, forsaken by God. And Calvin says, Emmanuel, God, went to the very place that the psalmist said, I can't go anywhere from your spirit. I can't flee from your presence if I go to hell. You're there. He says, in the person of Jesus Christ, it happened physically, actually among us. So that if you've ever had a moment in your life when you were crying out from the bottom of the pit, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what? It's not just that you have a companion with you in that place, so that's consolation enough, but it was actually Jesus who was calling out with you to the Father in that place. That's how close we are to God. And salvation happens the moment that you realize. There's a guy that goes to church here, wonderful man. I've enjoyed getting to know him over the last few years. And his story is an interesting story. Godly man, born and raised in the church, brought up in the faith. He had some traumas that happened to him when he was a young man. Eventually got married and had a family and all of that. And those traumas, because they were undealt with, all of a sudden they started kind of coming back to him and wreaking havoc in his life. And added to the trauma coming back, all of a sudden was substance abuse, was drinking too much, and this, that, and the other thing. And he eventually becomes separated from his family, loses his wife and his kids, and he's wandering around here, Colorado Springs, homeless, downtown. Talk about like, even if I make my bed in the depths, right? And one advent many years ago, he's wandering around downtown Colorado Springs. His life is in complete shambles. And all of a sudden, the spirit brings back to his memory the old song. I sang it in a sermon a few weeks ago. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And he's walking around downtown Colorado Springs and ransom captive Israel. Thinking about the shambles that his life has become that mourns in lonely exile here. And how am I ever going to be reunited with my family? Until the Son of God. And he said, as the memory that God is my Emmanuel, that was my light in the darkness. So I say to you, church, where can I go from his spirit? Where am I going to flee from his presence? If I go up to the heavens and if I make my bed, in the depths, where is he? Can I just ask you, what's the little grave that you're in this morning? What's the hell that you find yourself in this morning? Are you at the bottom of the pit in some way? A relationship that you fought for that's bottomed out? A situation you've been contending for that didn't turn around? A dream that you've held that's miscarried? Jesus, just, can I just say Jesus to you? He's there and he's with you and he's Emmanuel. 
And Emmanuel comes to us without conditions and without qualifications and without strings attached. God just gives himself to us in our experience. And so what does it mean to call Jesus Emmanuel? We know that we have a, he's a companion. He's with us. But it's more than that. Number two, I'd say that we have a companion who what? Heals us. So it's not just that God takes up residence with us in the low space and the broken places and the desolate places. And that would be great if that's all it was. We just knew that we had a companion. But there's something about the presence of God that when it gets into those spaces, God just, because God is a God of order, because God is a God of life, because God is a God of fullness and shalom, peace, what he does is he goes into that place and what you see is that he starts putting all of the pieces of it back together again. He actually takes Babylon and he makes it like the Garden of Eden. He takes hell and he begins to make a heaven of it. Yeah, maybe you didn't hear what I said. That's real good news, friends. Exodus 15, 26, the Lord says to his people, I am the Lord who... It's how he defines himself. I'm the Lord who heals you. You get close to me, I'm putting it back together again. That's just what I do. That's why we see what we see, by the way, in the ministry of Jesus. When Emmanuel finally starts revealing himself to these people, what do you see in Jesus? Healings everywhere. At one point, the evangelist Luke says this. He says that the people pressed in around him and everybody tried to touch him because power was coming out from them and healing them all. <laughs> what happens when the life itself takes a body and moves into the neighborhood, it's healing. What did Jesus do? Again, remember the psalmist, if I make my bed in the depths, where are you? But life on planet earth just is the depths, friends. I don't know if you've experienced that. It's shambles. Bodies don't work. Minds don't work. Relationships don't work. And so Jesus comes among us, and when he comes among us, he just starts kind of putting everything back together again. One of the things that all the gospel writers will say about the healings of Jesus is that they'll say that they're not just miracles, but they're also, the word starts with the letter S, do you know it? They're signs. They're signs. They're signaling something to us. What are they signaling? Well, they're signaling the life of the age to come. That where we are headed for is a moment when there will be no more death or sickness or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away and the voice that is seated on the throne will say, I am making everything. And so when Jesus moves in among us, what he does is he puts life back together again. And I'm telling you, it is an act, I think, of great hypocrisy not to believe God for healing, but still to confess him as we believe in one God, the almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and blah, blah, blah. We believe all this stuff. We don't believe that God can actually do anything in our midst. What, what is that all about? And I remember the point when this really like ah, came home to me in a very personal way was I was in seminary, a seminary up in Chicago. And I remember this one particular morning in Greek class, we were taking prayer requests like we always did every class period. And so, you know, what do you have that you're struggling with? And who do you, and so a bunch of prayer hands went up and different prayer requests were shared. And one person stuck their hand up in the air and said, well, I'd really, really like prayer 
for so-and-so, friend of the family, stage four, uh, brain tumor, inoperable. Would you please pray for healing for this person? So we auctioned off all the prayer requests and somebody said, oh yeah, I'll pray for the brain tumor, right? And so we got into the prayer time and they prayed for this and they prayed for that. And then we got to the moment where we're praying for the brain tumor. I'll never forget the person praying over this situation. This is more or less how the prayer went. God, we thank you that you're in charge of everything. We thank you that your plans for us are good plans and no plan of yours can be thwarted. We thank you that none of this is a surprise to you. And so we pray that there would be a sense of your presence in this situation. We pray comfort for the family and comfort especially for our dear brother or sister, whoever it was, who's going now through this deep and difficult trial. Reveal yourself to them. Show them how much you love them. Teach them to trust in you and purify them by this whole situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What were we missing, folks? Yeah, we never prayed for the tumor, did we? And I remember I'm born and raised Pentecostal charismatic. And my Pentecostal charismatic soul just recoiled. But did you have the gall to pray for all of these other things? And the one thing that was actually requested, you didn't pray for? Do you understand that like when people went to Jesus in the Gospels, please lay your hands on my son because he's possessed of a demon? Jesus didn't go, well, okay, I'm going to pray for comfort for you. And I realize that this is a trial for your child, but I pray that their heart would be purified. What did he do? Cast that devil out. Master, master, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? I want my sight. Oh, but, you know, through this trial, the Lord's going to give you spiritual sight. You know? Man, that is just pious hypocritical nonsense. Do you know why? Let me just go ahead and like, let's just point the hypocrisy out, okay? If you are willing to pray for things like comfort, do you understand what having a sense of comfort actually involves? It involves the spirit of the living God touching your prefrontal cortex in some way that feelings of comfort come over you and you have an understanding of the goodness of God that you did not have before. I don't know if you realize this, but that's a divine intervention, which is also known as a miracle. And so if you're willing to pray for comfort, you had better be willing to pray that brain tumors go away. Do you know why else? Because it's not like brain tumors are that much more difficult than comfort for God. The love and power that hung the sun and the stars, it keeps our universe intact. It's not like when we pray for comfort, he goes, oh yeah, I got that. I got a good track record with comfort. How about tumors? Those ones are tough, but I'll see what I can do. (laughs) No, I am the Lord who heals you. That's what he does when Emmanuel comes in our midst. He heals us. He puts our lives back together. Andrew, why doesn't everybody get healed? I don't know. 
but we're commanded to pray for these things. We're commanded to contend for healing. And when the healings break in, they're signs. They're reminders to us of who our God is and where he's taking our world. If you were at First Wednesday, a couple Wednesdays ago at New Life North, Pastor Daniel Grothy talked about a dramatic healing that we've seen in our midst one year ago, a man by the name of Jason Cole, longtime member of our congregation, about 41 years old. He got COVID, healthy guy, leading a normal life, and he gets COVID. And all of a sudden, the COVID takes a dramatic turn in his body, and he's fighting for his life. And the doctors medically induce him into a coma. And now they're saying to his wife, this is one year ago, so November of 2021, we're saying to his wife, he's got about a 5 to 10% chance at the optimistic side to live. And moreover, like every time we roll him over to change him and get him all situated, there's a really good chance that he's going to have a heart attack and he's going to expire in a second. And so you just better go ahead and get all of your affairs in order because there's a really good chance you're going to have to live the rest of your life without your husband. Just be prepared for that. And so on a first Wednesday night, the first Wednesday of November 2021, Pastor Daniel got up that night and shared that story and provoked the congregation saying, listen, congregation, the scripture says that if we have faith as small as a, I know you know it, mustard seed. By a show of hands, how many of you have faith as small as a mustard seed? You got mustard? Do we have mustard seed faith? Okay, so here's what Jesus says. That if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, what? Cast in the sea. It'll be done for you. So why don't we pray for that church? And so we all prayed for that together that first Wednesday. And we, like Jason Cole, stood on the platform with us two Wednesdays ago at New Life North. Healed and whole and restored. And I know that the skeptical among us are going, well, you know, the science would say that the medicine all of a sudden began to and blah, 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 blah. Who makes any of that work? Who makes the science work? Who makes the medicine work? Who gives the doctors their skill? There is one source of life. It's the one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of, so that if you've touched life anywhere, you have touched the face of God. God is our healer, and it's not just physical healing, but it's relational and social healing as well. That man that I told you about a little bit ago, wandering around the streets of Colorado Springs back in the 90s, his family blown apart, has no idea how he's going to make his way back home. And the Emmanuel reality begins dawning upon him. He's been reunited with his family, remarried his wife, restored to his kids. I called him Monday. I called him Monday to ask his permission to share his story. And when he picked up the phone, I heard the sound of his grandbabies in the background. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. That's what our God does. He puts the world back together again. And so we call Jesus our Emmanuel. We're naming him as that one who can put it all back together again. And so Jesus, our Emmanuel, is the God who is with us. He's our companion. He's our companion who heals us. But then there is this thing that we must come to grips with. And with this, we begin to make the turn into the table. That we have a companion who heals us how? By taking the curse of sin upon himself and exhausting it. So it's not as though when we see all of these miracles in the ministry of Jesus, 
It's not as though what God is doing is kind of coming among us in Jesus and waving a magic wand over us at a distance and kind of giving us a little healing and then keeping himself as a, at an appropriate remove over here. That's not how our God does it. It's a great little section of the book of Matthew when we start seeing the miracles of Jesus for the first time. All these mobs of people are following him. Healing is happening, happening everywhere. And there are three different healing scenes that take place in the book of Matthew chapter 8. And then Matthew has this little pause and he gives us some insight into what's actually happening in the ministry of Jesus in these healings. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah chapter 53, which you might remember is the song of the suffering servant, a prophecy of the Messiah that normally we'll read around Good Friday because it's a statement of what God has done for us in Christ. And this is what Isaiah says. Watch this. And Matthew quotes this to explain the healings. Surely he took up our and he bore our, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and what? Say it loud, church. By his wounds we are healed. How does Jesus heal us? He doesn't just wave the magic wand over us, but what he does is he takes all of the pain and the brokenness, all of the sin and the guilt and the shame, every fracture wrought by sin, he takes it into his, himself. He who is the source of infinite life and power and goodness, and he exhausts it in the cross and then releases strength and life and the kingdom back at us. One of the great thinkers of the early church, Athanasius of Alexandria, said that what God has not assumed, he has not healed. So what is it that God has assumed? Every awful thing that you've ever done, God took it. Every bit of fragmentation and failure in our world, God took it. Every sickness and every disease, God took it. Every evil thing that was ever done, God took it. Every injustice, all oppression, all anxiety and fear and depression, who took it? He's carrying it in his body even now. And do you know what that means for us? We can trust him. We can trust him. Because it's not just that he will carry our stuff or that he's capable of carrying our stuff. It's that in the cross of Jesus, he has carried it. And he is carrying it now to the very end. All you got to do is trust him. Can you do that this morning, church? Can we stand and prepare ours for communion? And could you just now begin to release your heart to Jesus? And you know what the pain points of your own life are. Some of you, it's physical healing that you're contending for. Would you release that to Jesus? Some of you, it's relational healing that you need. You need reconciliation. You need it all to get put back together again. Would you release that to Jesus? He's carried it. He carried it. By his wounds, we're healed. Some of you, you, you are mired in sin. Some habit went sideways, and now you can't get yourself out of it. You feel trapped in it. Jesus, carry, he's carrying that. And he has the power to deliver you from it. Would you just release that? I don't know what your pain point is this morning, friend. Maybe you're dealing with doubt and despair. Jesus from the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got a companion there. And he's healing it by animating your own despair with his trust. 
Because the same one who said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eventually said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He's doing that in you now. But you just surrender to Jesus. Welcome Jesus. Let every heart prepare him room. And so we trust you, Jesus. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. It's my body and it's broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you, this cup right here. It's the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for many, for everyone, for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Jesus, here and now at the table, we offer bread and cup up to you. You said, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they'll be filled. And we are hungry and thirsty for the inbreaking righteousness of God. So we offer bread and cup to you. By themselves, they're nothing. But if you'd lay your hands upon them and bless them and break them and give them to us, then it might become more. It might become a highway of holiness, a path to the presence, communion with God. And that's what we're hungry for. So come, we say. Fill these elements and our experience of them with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence that we might find ourselves made and remade again as the body of Jesus Christ. Do that, we're praying in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'm inviting our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. As always, four communion stations up front here, depending on your section. You'll exit your row on the left side, row by row. And then go back in on the right side. And as we do that, we're going to teach you a new song this morning, a song that speaks of these things. Uh, we have been talking about Jesus, our Emmanuel, who takes upon himself the sin of the world. So brothers and sisters, I say to you that these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.